During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers toward the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. So the twelve called a meeting of the disciples, and they said, It wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the word of God to help with the care of the poor. So friends, choose seven men from among you whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and we'll assign them this task. Meanwhile, we'll stick to our assigned tasks of prayer and speaking God's word. The congregation thought this was a great idea. They went ahead and chose, among others, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. The word of God prospered. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. Stephen, brimming with God's grace and energy, was doing wonderful things among the people, unmistakable signs that God was among them. But then some men from the meeting place went up against him, trying to argue him down. But they were no match for his wisdom and spirit when he spoke. So in secret, they bribed men to lie. We heard him cursing Moses and God. That stirred up the people, the religious leaders and the religion scholars. They grabbed Stephen and took him before the high council. As all those who sat on the high council looked at Stephen, they found they couldn't take their eyes off him. His face was like the face of an angel. Then the chief priest said, What do you have to say for yourself? And Stephen replied, Friends, fathers and brothers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and he made a covenant with him and signed it by circumcision. When Abraham had his son Isaac, he reproduced the sign of circumcision in him. Isaac became father of Jacob, and Jacob father of twelve fathers, each faithfully passed on the covenant sign. But then those fathers, burning up with jealousy, sent Joseph off to Egypt as a slave. But God was right there with him. Later, when the 400 years of slavery were nearly up, the time God promised Abraham for deliverance, Moses was born. In the wilderness of Mount Sinai, Moses heard God's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm sending you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they earlier rejected, saying, Who put you in charge of us? But God still had Moses lead them out of their slavery. This is the Moses who said to his congregation, God will raise up a prophet just like me from your descendants. But the people craved the old Egyptian ways, whining to Aaron, Make us gods we can see and follow. God wasn't at all pleased, but he let them do it their way. Worship every new god that came down the pike and live with the consequences. And you continue so bullheaded, calluses on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared talk about the coming of the just one. And you've kept up the family tradition, traitors and murderers, all of you. You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift wrapped, and you squandered it. At that point, they went wild, a rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, hardly noticed. He only had eyes for God, whom he saw in all his glory with Jesus standing at his side. And he said, Oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side. 
Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear. Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. Saul was right there congratulating the killers. That set off a terrific persecution of the church in Jerusalem. You can turn there with me to Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to start this morning. And we already heard the story of Stephen from the message this morning. Um, and 8.1 falls right after that story. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Period. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's almost like by inserting that uh, heading there, which is not like in the original text or in the original Greek, but, but that heading sort of makes us think, okay, these are two separate stories. But um, as I started to, to investigate this, I realized um, I needed to go back and look at what was happening here. Um, the two things that connects these two sentences, or the thing that connects these two sentences, um, is Stephen's life. He's the bridge that kind of brings these two ideas together. Um, he's the thing that Saul was looking at, or the person that Saul was looking at, um, that spurred on some type of persecution. So this morning, um, we're going to think of Stephen, uh, and I want us to look at his life. I want us to go back. We're going to look at his life um, almost like the scenes of a play or acts of a play. So we're going to look at his life in different acts. And then we're going to try to kind of draw some observations and inferences about his life and think about how that may influence us. The image that came to my mind when I started to think about Stephen's life was the image of a flashbulb. Um, so that's what I have on the slides. It's just kind of a, an image for us to start to think about his life with. Um, a flashbulb, as you know, just, it's, it's a flash of light that is um, instantaneous, and it lights up the room for a brief time. And I think that's what Stephen's life was. Um, his life was a flashbulb in the early life of the church. It went off with this flash of light. It had profound impact on the early church, and then it was gone. Um, Stephen first appears in Acts chapter 6. They talk about him from 6, 7, and 8. But by Acts chapter 8, verse 1, he is dead. And he's only mentioned two other times in Scripture beyond the mentioning of him between 6 and 8. Um, and, and both of those times were by Paul himself referring back to Stephen. So Stephen is a flashbulb. And for, for um, some reason, he's sort of this connecting bridge for the church. And um, so for the last two weeks, as I've been thinking about this, I kind of thought I was going to be talking about the scattering of the church, but I got caught up in Stephen's life, and um, his life kind of got me stuck because there were things in his life that I could not easily resolve. And um, so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get stuck in Stephen's life for the next 20 minutes, and we are going to um, be okay with that, and uh, we're just going to kind of rest in his life and see what we can learn. 
So I want to go back to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And if anything, Stephen was a witness. And this idea of witness is really the question of the day. What is a gospel witness? I already introduced it as part of one of the guiding questions of the series. But the question for this morning is, what is a gospel witness? And rather than just kind of answer that question with my ideas, I want us to look at Stephen's life, go through the acts of his life, the scenes of his life, and try to answer that question, what is a gospel witness? Act 1, Stephen called as a deacon. This is in chapter 6. The very first thing that we see is that there is this skirmish in the church. The apostles are having trouble because the Hellenistic and the Grecian Jews um, are arguing because the Grecian widows are being overlooked within the context of the church. So the apostles realize we need to be focused on preaching the word and we need to um, have men that will help us. So they said to the, to the people in the church at that point, they said, brothers, call people among you that are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, and we'll assign this task to them. If you remember last spring, Pastor John actually gave a sermon on this very passage when he talked about how deacons in our church are both deaconing, deacons of the tables and deacons of the word. They serve this twofold purpose of serving the word and serving um, in practical ways. Um, So the first point there is that a gospel witness is a servant. That's the first fill in the blank under Act 1. A gospel witness is a servant. Stephen was called by his brothers and called by the Lord to be a servant. And this is just an obvious place to start when it comes to gospel witness. We don't need to spend a lot of time here, but it is important to note that he started as a servant. The other thing that we notice early in his life is that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is very um, specific in how he describes Stephen. The words that he uses are very specific. I want to highlight those for you. Verse 3. Choose seven from men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Verse 5. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. In verse 10, the men could not stand up against Stephen. They could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Luke records some striking details about Stephen, Stephen's character. And this is the second point, that a gospel witness is full of the Holy Spirit. A gospel witness is full of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is a place that might seem obvious to start when it comes to gospel witness. But I just want to point out here that um, to be full of the Holy Spirit is to put the Holy Spirit on display and to put the power of the Holy Spirit on display. When I first heard that phrase, being full of the Holy Spirit, I was confused because I thought, does that mean that the Holy Spirit is measured out in different amounts and that certain believers have a fuller measure of the Holy Spirit? Um, Is that what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit, like filled with a cup to the Holy Spirit? Uh, I don't think that's completely accurate. I think what's happening here is that um, Luke focuses on the power of the Holy Spirit. And that was what was unique 
in Stephen's life is that he actually displayed the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. Um, And Stephen was that. In fact, it was his fullness of the Spirit that got him in trouble. He was um, doing wonders and signs. His actions were um, creating a stir in the early church. And with the Jews in the area, the Sanhedrin, that were very um, worried about this new movement, um, it was Stephen that was doing these signs and wonders, this deacon of tables that started to get himself in trouble because he was displaying the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we go to Act 2. Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin. We heard it in the reading what the accusations were against him. But I want us to go to chapter 7, verse 1. And I want us to think about the scene or the act that is happening here. In, in verse 1, Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin. And I think sometimes we just kind of minimize the um, tension that might be in the room or the danger that might be in the room with this group. If you go back, and I encourage you this week to read through Acts, read Acts chapter 5 and tell me what you think about that and how that may have been running through Stephen's head, that the apostles were in this same exact situation. They barely escaped with their lives and they were beaten and flogged. Um, So Stephen, as he stands before the Sanhedrin, he is at a scene of his life that um, all he did was good stuff to get him here. And, uh, And yet he stands before this vicious group that is calling him out. Um, So this point, this gospel witness point that I want to make as Stephen stands is that a gospel witness faces serious trouble. Stephen was at a crossroads in his life. And um, this idea of serious trouble coming into his life, I've kind of thought a lot about that over the last two weeks. Like, there are all kinds of troubles that come into our lives. Um, Troubles that are normal to everyday human life. Um, Is the trouble that Stephen faced, was this a trouble of everyday life that he faced? Was it a trouble that all of us might face or will face? Um, One of the books that I've been reading is called um, Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And in this book, um, Francis Chan starts to talk about how we, as the American church, have minimized the work of the Holy Spirit um, to such a way that we almost have minimized um, the reality that the Holy Spirit is God himself. And um, Stephen didn't have that problem. He had not forgotten about the Holy Spirit. And... um, he faced some serious trouble that Francis Chan talks about that I think might relate to us. The quote should be behind me on the screen. And I want to read this for you. It talks about trouble. Taking up my cross has become a euphemism for getting through life's typical burdens with a semi-good attitude. Yet life's typical burdens, busy schedules, bills, illness, hard decisions, paying for college tuition, losing jobs, houses not selling, and the family dog dying are felt by everyone, whether or not they follow the way of Jesus. When Jesus calls us to take up his cross, our cross, he is doing much more than calling us to endure the daily circumstantial troubles of life. The people in Jesus' day were very familiar with the cross. Having witnessed crucifixion, they understood the commitment and sacrifice of taking up a cross. It is a call to radical faith. 
Jesus is calling us to be willing to suffer anything and forsake everything for the sake of the gospel. And uh, Francis Chan, if you listen to him, you know that he's a radical, and everything that he says sounds radical. Um, And I kind of get caught up in some of that stuff. But I want to point out that um, I think he is hitting on something interesting here, that as Christians, there might be a certain type of trouble that we face that is unique to our Christianity. And I think we here in the States, um, we don't understand this very well because uh, all the troubles that we face are common to man, uh, whether they believe or not. And um, I don't want to minimize those troubles because I really do think that in the everyday troubles of life, we do have the opportunity to put Christ on display. Um, Just a week ago, or a week and a half ago, before Christmas, um, we watched friends of ours bury their daughter who was four months old. And my daughter, Mercy, was born five days away from this, this, their, our friend's daughter. And, um, you know, to see them go through this trouble of life, to um, bury a child at su- such a young age is, is hard to understand. And yet, uh, I know that that has been an opportunity for them to put Christ on display. So I don't think we can minimize the troubles that we face in this earth. But I do think there are certain troubles that we may face as Christians. And that's what Stephen faces. Um, And that's the serious trouble that he faces. Which kind of leads into the next act. Act 3. Stephen gives his defense before the Sanhedrin. Um, We heard that Stephen's face was shining like an angel. And we have heard that uh, the men in the area could not stand up to the power that he spoke with. Um, So Stephen uses this opportunity. He's at a crossroads. He's asked this question, are these charges true? And um, he makes a decision, I think, to go for it. And Stephen gives his defense. Um, The point here is that a gospel witness takes unselfish risks. I think that the Sanhedrin, when they looked at his face and they saw his power, I don't think they could stop him from saying what he said in Acts chapter um, 7. So we have 60 verses or 50 verses of this just uh, intricate detail that Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin about the constant habitual rejection of the nation of Israel of uh, their constant rejection of the true prophets. Um, Over and over again, they have sided with Joseph's brothers or Aaron asking them to make them a golden calf. Um, They've rejected the prophets time and time again. Stephen goes into great detail, and you have to imagine that the Sanhedrin were pretty much waiting on his every word because not only did he speak with power, but he spoke with... um, great detail about the history of the nation of Israel. Um, So they could not stop him, and he took an unselfish risk. I thought about what would I do in that situation. I mean, how can you not in this case? And um, this led me back to a book that I read a while ago. It's called Don't Waste Your Life by um, by John Piper. 
And um, in this book, John Piper talks about not wasting your life. And um, he says the great tragedy is that many in, in America do. So I would encourage you to read this book. It will certainly convict some of the things, some of the ways that you live. But um, I want to make sure I'm right on my notes here. Yeah, there should be a, um, a quote here from John Piper that I want to read to you about risk. If our single, all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, and if the life that magnifies him most is the life of costly love, then life is risk, and risk is right. To run from it is to waste your life. And he goes on in this book to talk about how we constantly run from risk in our lives. And um, the only risks that we are willing to engage in are either calculated risks that are not very risky, um, and really is, is, is a calculated risk even a risk. I would say some of the things that we call risks are not even risks. Um, so we'll engage in calculated risks or we'll engage in real risk that will either protect our family or um, help our security. He talks about this enchantment with security that we have. And, um, and I think that's a natural tendency for all of us. Um, it's, it's for me too. I want to keep my family safe and I want to ensure my security on this earth as much as possible. But Stephen takes an unselfish risk here. He takes a risk that is um, really to no benefit to himself. And we'll see that. And uh, so I encourage you, when you think about his life, just to think about the risks that you're taking in life. Uh, John Piper tells this story of two missionaries. Um, They were 79 and 80, two women. One was a nurse and one was a doctor. They were in Cameroon, and their brakes gave way. And their car went off a cliff, and they both passed away um, in Cameroon. And he talks about this story in, in the light of tragedy. And he talks about tragedy and the tragic life. And he says that these two missionaries, their lives were not tragic. The way that they died was not tragic. Um, so I think when we think about risk, I think we need to push ourselves to um, look at examples from our past. Well, Stephen keeps talking in Act 4. He begins to uh, change his tone, and he sounds pretty ticked off. Um, Dan read it really well during worship, and I want to read it for us again because it really highlights um, what Stephen is calling out um, before these men. uh, Chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. So Stephen was called um, before the Sanhedrin to give a defense of himself and his own actions, and his own words. Um, And yet he goes on the offensive with this group of Sanhedrin and this court and and this before him. And um, it's here that Stephen speaks the truth boldly. And this is the next point, that a gospel witness 
speaks truth boldly. Great care is taken by the writer Luke to, um, to help us understand Stephen's um, emotions. And his emotions are set against the emotions of the Sanhedrin. And uh, we don't have time to read it all. But Stephen, even in his boldness, somehow he, he controls his anger. And um, it's the Sanhedrin who cannot control their anger. Um, and I, I often think, like, when we think about our bold witness, that we will speak the truth with boldness, I think sometimes we get confused on how to do that in the proper way that maintains our understanding of anger. Um, and Stephen does this for us. Uh, one of the things that I read is that St. Augustine called Stephen. He said that Stephen puts on the display of the Holy Spirit. He puts on the fire of the Holy Spirit, and he puts on display the dove of the Holy Spirit at the same time. And, and I think that's where you get this mixture of grace and power, this mixture of sweetness and strength that Stephen displays in his life. And it's pretty amazing. Um, so in, in uh, verse 54, we saw the same thing that we saw last week. Luke slows down the text, and he starts giving like these random details. Well, not, not details that are random, but details that you might not expect to be there. Um, Pastor John just said the same thing about the story of Abraham and Isaac, that when Abraham started to pack up his son to take him and offer him, um, the writer of Genesis slows down the text. And Luke does the same thing here. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I was, when I read that, I thought, gnash their teeth? Like, who gnashes teeth? And what does that mean? I mean, I just thought that was an odd way to describe these guys. Um, but I think it gets back at their anger. Their jaws were like so clenched that, um, have you ever been that angry that you're, <laughs> you can't even speak because you're so angry? Um, but then it's contrasted with Stephen, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Verse 59, when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What he had said, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Uh, so this moves us into Act 5, which is the final scene, the final act of Stephen's life. And uh, we're already there. We're already at the end of his life. It didn't take that long to walk through his life. And... Um, I want to point out three things that I see at the end of his life that I think are really profound. And this is where I start to get stuck with this sermon. Um, a gospel witness is full of forgiveness. It's the first point under this Act 5. A gospel witness is full of forgiveness. And Stephen's forgiveness um, is something that if we really are honest, we really think about it, we really put ourselves in his situation... His forgiveness is hard to understand. And the only thing that I can say to that is that um, he got what Jesus said, either through the apostles or by being with Jesus himself. 
Um, he really took Jesus' words and made them transformational in his life. And he was, even at the end of this um, point, he was full of forgiveness. The second thing that we see at the end of his life is that a gospel witness imitates Christ. And Stephen here imitates Christ. Even the details that Luke lists for us, really, if you go back and you look at the end of Christ's life, the details mimic, sometimes word for word, the crucifixion of Christ. What Stephen says at the end of his life is almost word for word what Christ says at the end of his life. The way that Stephen was called before the Sanhedrin by false accusations was the same way that Christ was called. Um, So even in his death, Stephen imitates Christ. And this this is the point in Stephen's life where I'm not comfortable going any further with him. Everything that he's done up to this point is admirable and um, something that I would admire in such a way that I would actually try to put it into practice in my own life. Um, yet he, he hits on this point of imitating Christ um, in a way that I'm not sure that I want to do um, that same type of imitation. I don't know if I want to imitate Stephen. Um, so this question, what is a gospel witness? It's been in my mind for the last two weeks And this past week, um, I was actually off from work, but I was preparing my sermon at the same time. So I would kind of do half days on the sermon. Then I would would either spend the morning with the kids or the afternoon and just... um, So that was my week. I was in this kind of fuzzy place. Maybe you've been in the same place where you've taken a week off from work, but you're still working. And you're at home, but you're kind of distracted. Um, That was my week this past week because... Like I said, I got stuck in Stephen's life, so I would be brushing my teeth and thinking about Stephen and that sort of thing. But I want to tell you um, a couple memories that I have from this past week. I started to ask my question, this question about Stephen. I said um, to myself, it, you know, was Stephen a father? Did he have a family? And the text doesn't really say specifically. Um, it could have gone either way. Um, if he didn't have a family, he may have had one at some point. Um, so I want to tell you about these kind of four memories that I've had with my family this week. Um, I, we have a four-month-old daughter. Her name is Mer- Mercy. And I was holding her at one point and uh, kind of just trying to get her to calm down. And Libby helped remind me the, uh, the best way to hold her so that I could calm her down. Now I'm usually pretty good at holding my kids, but with Mercy... I'm still learning, you know, the magic way to hold her. And I just thought, this is cool. I'm at home. I'm helping take care of Mercy, and I'm, I'm learning how to even take care of her better. Um, and then uh, even yesterday, Silas, my two-year-old son, he was climbing on my back. And he, as he was climbing, he called me a horse. And at first I was like, oh, man, he's calling me a horse. But when, you're, when your two-year-old son calls you a horse, that's usually a good thing because he was climbing on my back, and we were having a good time. And then uh, my daughter, Eden, she's five. She got a, um, a cash register that's kind of like a fake McDonald's cash register. And it came with plastic McDonald's food. So uh, she was like, hey, I'm going to make you lunch. She started ringing up my lunch. Um, and she brought me lunch. And I ate the plastic fries. And um, I think she charged me like $25 or something. <laughs> and, uh, but, I mean, it was fun. And, and then um, with Eli, he's, he's my son, we... Um, we have him taking piano lessons now. 
And he's just at the point where he's getting good enough that he and I actually played a song together. I was playing guitar and he was playing piano. And I thought, this is cool. Like, new things are happening with my children. Um, there's joy in my life that, that I'm experiencing. And I started to think about Stephen's life as I was experiencing this joy. And, and uh, it was just kind of in that spot where you are sometimes where um, Scripture doesn't always make sense, but you just trust it. Um, so I think at the end of Stephen's life, it, it gets harder to understand. And, um, but he is an example that's worth imitating. Um, the other thing I thought about is, as an engineer... Uh, isn't there, wasn't there a better way to use Stephen's life, either a more efficient way or a, a safer way? You know, engineers are all about safety. And um, there was nothing safe about Stephen's life. I was wondering, like, he was this new leader in the church, and yet he um, was called to this high call of death. Wouldn't it have made more sense for him to start to hang out with Saul, take Saul to breakfast maybe, like, every Thursday? And start to hang out with Saul and, um, you know, do the relationship thing, help Saul to see um, where his anger is rooted in and, and kind of, you know, walk alongside Saul. But the efficient engineer in me couldn't resolve Stephen's life. And um, that's where we come to the end. And that last point um, about Stephen's life is that, uh, and kind of a little play on words here, a gospel witness influences someone in particular. And um, it was Stephen's life, I think, that had a particular influence on the life of Saul. Um, We already saw that. I have this stone from my front yard because I've been challenged to think about the reality of this story, that, um, that stones were actually flying at him. And he was actually okay with that somehow. Um... Stephen started as a servant in the church, much, much like we are servants in the church. And he started displaying the acts of the Spirit in his life. And then his words started to back up how he was living. Um, and yet there gets, comes to this certain point in his life where stones come flying at him, and he, he accepts it. Um, and this is where we're going to end. Uh, back at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Because I think Stephen's death had a particular influence on Saul. Because if you look at 8.1, where we started, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Um, I think that Saul could not shake this image that he saw. Um, I already said that I think Stephen was a flashbulb to the church that went off. But I think to Saul, he was a flashbulb memory that Saul could not shake for his whole life. A flashbulb memory is something that you experience something significant and then that memory takes on photographic quality so that you can go back to it over and over again and you can relive some, maybe some strange details about that circumstance. Like maybe you remember um, when one of the towers fell, like where you were standing or sitting or the room that you were in. Um, that could be um, a flashbulb memory for you. Or maybe you heard some tragic news and you can recall exactly what you were doing at that moment. Um, and you kind of go back to that moment and, it, and over and over again. And I think this is what happened with Paul. In Acts 22.20, 20, Paul said to the Lord, 
When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And it was Saul that had to relive this story over and over again in his life. And um, I think it was that particular gospel witness that was influential in Saul's life. Um, later, Saul, Christ himself appears to Saul, but Saul never got to see Christ crucified the same way that the apostles did. Um, so I think if we had the opportunity to ask Paul, I think Paul would say, no, for me, Saul was an opportunity to see Christ on the cross. And that's where we end this morning. And I know that that is a difficult place to end because um, how do you go out and apply Stephen's life? And even more profoundly, how do you go out and apply his death? Um, and yet we are called to, to come and die. That's what Christ calls us to. So um, in closing, I want us just to think about that and reflect on that. Um, I think the essential thing that God does need to grow his church is gospel witnesses. We give him a lot of other stuff. We give him offerings and good things. But without gospel witnesses, his church will not grow and it will not scatter.